Would you bow with me this morning? I want you to think of a situation that you think is impossible. Think of a situation that is hopeless. Hopefully it's uh, one that's dear to you. So think of a hopeless or an impossible situation. This morning, I, uh, in my quiet time with the Lord, or semi-quiet time, I'm surrounded by kids, but um, semi-quiet time, and uh, I came across a desperate dad whose son was demon-possessed. He would go into crazy convulsions, so much so that he would fall into the fire and be burned or thrown into the water and almost drowned. Jesus says, oh, an unbelieving generation. The desperate dad comes to Jesus. And he says this. Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. So I want you to take that situation, what you're imagining... And I want you to say with me in just a moment, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. So on the count of three, let's do that. One, two, three. Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Amen. So we were working in the backyard, and I was on the outside of our, of our in the back alley, and I see, like, three weeks ago, this bee that has decided not to hibernate or whatever bees do, or maybe not a bee, maybe it was a wasp. But there it was, and I took pity on it. Instead of doing anything to it, I just, oh, poor wasp, and I just left it alone. I walk inside. 15 minutes later, mom, 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 and what happened is Caden's freaking out because Mateo has been bitten, and Mateo cannot get bitten. So what happens here is this... I went back to the same pole where I saw this lethargic wasp, and it was gone. So I should have got that sucker. But nonetheless, what it came, it somehow came back into the little chariot in the backyard, into a chariot, where my little boy sat down, and right where he puts his head, it bit him in the head, and he goes, ow, and he puts his hand over here, and it bites him again. He gets two bites right there, and then all of a sudden starts to swell big time back here. So we go into the house, and I'm letting my wife deal with it, looking at the situation. It's starting to swell, wondering, hmm. So instead of phoning 911, you phone that other one. What's that other one? The nurse line? 811 or something like that? It's a 11 number. And uh, everything seemed fine. I'm going back to the backyard, and I start to work, and all of a sudden, I hear sirens. And I turn around, two very bright, shiny objects coming toward my house. And there was the uh, first responders, the ambulance and everything. And I guess what had happened is because he has this allergic reaction to it, we had to do something right now. And on the phone, uh, she says, you need to give him the EpiPen right now. So suddenly we, you know, you can imagine what's all going on. There's, there's Caden holding Mateo's hand and there's Jada, who's very expressive. And then my wife just opens it up and, you know, does that thing. And Jada's going, mom! And she's free. Mom, get it out, get it out, get it out. She thinks murder is happening here. So she's going to phone 911, but for a different reason. 
So anyway, my, you know, my cute little three-apple-high kid goes into the ambulance and is taken. I tell you, needles freak me out, but needles are also good. And uh, I don't know, that reminds me too of Caden's birthday just so, so many years ago when I told you we were in Manitoba and they stepped on a plywood, a piece of plywood, and it disturbed a whole hornet's nest. And they each, on, on Caden's birthday, each Caden uh, and Jada got 11 bites that day in, in one shot. That would have killed my little boy. So I'm very thankful for needles. I'm very thankful for things like that. But uh, today, I want us to consider this. Are you immunized? Have you gotten a needle? Are you spiritually immunized? And I want to look at it in two ways this morning. I want to know that if, have you been uh, poked with the needle of death and you've been, you've tasted death enough that all you want now is life? Or have you been poked with the needle of just a little bit of Jesus that you think you have just enough Jesus that you're actually inoculated, that you don't really want Jesus. You just want stuff about Jesus. That's where I want to go this morning. Heavenly Father, open up your word to us, and I just pray that it becomes real. And uh, it's exciting, your word, so help me not to get in the way of it. In Christ's name, amen. So you'll remember just after the uh, 9-11 attack, there's all sorts, like everybody was scared to open mail because of anthrax and all the other things, powdery substances. And then there was also this uh, talk of bioterrorist threats that somewhere around the world they had kept these little vials of certain diseases like smallpox and people are going why in the world would we keep smallpox when we eradicated it but then later on we realized that if all of a sudden small cups smallpox does come back for some reason then we have the antidote we have the inoculation so that when it comes back we can hopefully fight it once again so it actually is a brilliant plan that is in place uh, to fight bioterrorism or to fight uh, any kind of biological disease that might pop up again. So when I look at it, when I looked at even immunization, what does it mean? And Webster would say one of the definitions is to introduce immunologically active material as an antibody or an antigen into, especially in order to treat or prevent a disease. So that blows me away. They give you a little bit, just a wee bit of the disease so that you develop antibodies to fight the disease. Isn't that kind of crazy if you think about it? Like to me, that kind of freaks me out, but I guess I have to trust others. So you get a little bit of the disease so that you build up an immunity toward the the disease. So keep that in mind when we're talking about tasting death enough that you're sick of it and all you want is life or tasting just a little bit of Jesus. And being satisfied with that, that you actually are inoculated to Jesus. So, John chapter 3. Turn with me. This is a juicy passage. John chapter 3. You know uh, one of the main verses that most people in the world know on this one. But we're going to start at uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. John 3, starting in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So Pharisee was a high-fluting guy with the, the law of God. So he, he should have been tight with God since he was so religious. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, or teacher, we know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. 
In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he was born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but a spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So just a bit of background there. You wonder, and sometimes we see and we've looked at Nicodemus as kind of an undercover brother, that he's one of those guys that believes in Jesus, but he comes to him at night. And I'm not sure. He could actually be coming at night simply because he actually wants to prove him wrong or he wants to prove him right. I'm not sure. But here it seems as though he comes and he's coming to verify because he is a member of the Sanhedrin and he will be able to tell whether Jesus is true or not true. So I'm not sure if he's being a bit pomp or if he thinks a lot of himself. Not sure on that one. But he comes and I can, I can almost see that they might be meeting together and then a draft comes through and Jesus says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus knows he's been born of the flesh. Obviously, he came from his mother's womb, but now he's being born again. Well, what am I supposed to do? He's an old man. He's probably in his 70s. He's supposed to crawl back into, you know, that's kind of a bad word picture, right? But that's what he's kind of saying. So he's trying to ask this. And then verse 9, how can this be, Nicodemus asks. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus says. You're Israel's teacher, and you do not understand what I'm saying. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who has came from heaven, the Son of Man, a.k.a. Jesus. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son so this is the verdict light has come into the world but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. May God bless the reading of his word. I love this. In this passage, we're not going to parse it all about, but what's interesting here is there seems to be something more than just what we read. And what I mean by that, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes, but you know as well as I do that just simply saying a little itsy bitsy prayer or believing as in, yeah, I believe in Jesus and we continue on. James makes it very, very obvious when he says even the demons believe 
and shudder. So if you sit there and believe, quote unquote, in Jesus, but there's zero change in your life, then do you really believe in Jesus? There's a big difference there. There's a big difference there. And then it's also a characteristic of a believer that he doesn't run again to his stuff of old, to the darkness, to the evil, to the things in the shadows, but he is true with himself because he's true with God so he can open up the blind and see all the dust bunnies going on because he's going, this is me and Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. And if you can't do that, then perhaps there still is something in you that's drawn to the darkness and runs away from the light. That's a characteristics that he's talking about here. Here, in just verse 16 and on, this is what the message says, and I think it's kind of a neat way of saying it. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his only son, his one and only son, and this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right, to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust in him has long since been under the death sentence without even knowing it. And why? Because of that person's failure to believe in the one-of-a-kind son of God who introduced, when introduced to him. So this is the crisis we're in. God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for darkness. They went from, for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, addicted to denial and delusion, hates God light and won't come near it, fearing a painful exposure. But anyone working and living in truth and reality welcomes God light so the work can be seen for the God work that it is. Right now, I'm in a small group. Nobody really knows this, but I'm in a small group called Freedom Session. And it's not very fun. It's freedom session because it's kind of based on 12-step program. So you kind of realize that there's stuff in your life that ain't so good and you do inventories, mere inventories, what God appreciates you, you got to admit it. But then all, all sorts of inventories of things that you've done wrong or how you've hurt people, you got to make amends. It follows the 12-step program. It's totally uncomfortable. It's the worst. But it's good. It's good because you kind of come toward it and what it should be doing is you're taking inventory and finally you can take off some of the baggage you've been carrying on forever, some of the things that draws you toward the darkness, you can take it off and you can walk into the light. It's not this new age kind of authenticity where I've seen and I've heard so many times, this is me and who cares about you or, you know, sorry for saying this, but they'd say, screw you, this is me. That's not authenticity. Authenticity is being able to walk into the light because God has made you. He has a plan for your life. And you can go, yeah, this is Steve. There's a lot of cool stuff about me. And there's some stuff that God's still working on me. That's authenticity. Authenticity is wanting to change, wanting to become better for God. It's not like take it or leave it. Who cares what you think? That's not authenticity. That's pride. So here, I'm not sure what Nicodemus is thinking, but boy, did he ever get nailed by Jesus when he says, you folks are supposed to be teachers of the law and you don't even know this? You need to be born again. So first off, in, in, in John chapter uh, 3, verse 16, you gotta see that first of all, God pursued you. God pursued me that he gave. 
not only did he create us, and then we're born into the sinful world, and some of us don't even realize that we're in these polluted waters, but when finally, and I believe everybody is exposed to the light, when finally we are exposed to light, what are we doing with that? Do we smell and look around and see, well, wow, I'm in pollution? Or do you go, I love this pollution. I want more. I want more. In fact, I was in a lineup in Blaine, and this, this woman says to her daughter, now Pandora, settle down. And I'm going, wow, you call your kid Pandora and want her to settle down? You, <laughs> you, 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 that's all you. you know. But Pandora freaks me out, and I've explained that to my son. You crack open Pandora's box, try and shut it again. Good luck. Good luck. And as a side note, young people, that's why parents, you sometimes think they're overprotective. Well, good Lord, we know what's out there and we want you to walk this path because we know sometimes if you open that door, we might not see you again. God gave and also now he says, and uh, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Believes, we've already just talked a little bit about, is in John or in James, we know that demons believe. So that's, we're, we're talking about something different here. Because if you actually believe something, you're gonna go for it, you're gonna do it. There's a confidence, there's a faith, there's a trust in believing. And Numbers chapter 21, I gotta read this for you. It's a fantastic story. So keep your finger in John uh, chapter Three, but also go to Numbers 21. This is a fascinating story. 21, uh, starting at verse 4. They, the Israelites, they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses. You got to remember they were, they were relieved from Egypt. They were went through the exodus. They've seen God at work in so many different ways. They were free, no longer slaves, but now they're walking around for many years. And it's interesting, the people became impatient along the way and they grumbled against God. They grumbled against Moses and said, why have you brought us up here out of Egypt to die in this desert? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, Ah, we've sinned. We've spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will, will take these snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Interesting, verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake. He put it up on a pole. Then, when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Well, I, I think I would have done something different. God, come on, really? That's kind of a crazy way of doing all this stuff, right? Can you imagine that if snakes came in here now? Okay, everyone, just look up at my bronze snake. You're going, what? You're going to be a first aid kit downstairs. You're going to be looking for the RN that's within here or a doctor. You'll do anything, 911, but you're going to, bronze snake, he's lost it. 
right? So there's something here that's just unbelievable. And it's not the snake that had all these powers that you look up at, you know? There's something that when they looked up and believed, believed to look up in faith, that somehow God intervened or quickened something that the person could live. But the folks, first of all, what happened to them? If they weren't bitten, did it help? What, had, what was the, the whole sequence of events here? When they were what? Bitten. Then they looked up in faith, right? Some of you, some of us, we're still clueless that we've been bitten by death. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. So that's number one. If, you, if something hurts down here, you may, perhaps it's because you've been bitten by a snake or some, stuff's not going right in your life or perhaps you're feeling empty or perhaps you're looking around and you know, what have you done with, I don't know. But at the end of the day, have you turned toward Jesus Christ and in faith looked toward him? And some way, somehow in the great mysteries of God is when we do that in faith, Somehow he quickens us and sends us the Holy Spirit so that now not only are we cleansed and we live freely with God and we can walk into the light, but as a bonus, he sends his Holy Spirit to help us walk into the light. And that's crazy. Think about that. We serve a God that not only has done something incredible by being a martyr, but he died on the cross, rose again. That's not enough. He sends somebody to help us out. This is incredible. This is the gospel, my friends. So much as the serpent was lifted up on the pole, somebody said, so the Son of God would be lifted up on the cross. Why? To save us from sin and death. In the camp of Israel, the solution to the serpent problem was not in killing the serpents. That would make sense. Just kill as many as you can. Nope. The solution wasn't there. The solution wasn't in making medicine. The solution was not in pretending that they were not there. The solution was not in passing anti-serpent laws or climbing the pole. The answer was in looking by faith at the uplifted serpent. And what was the serpent a symbol of in this, in this, just in numbers, not in John, in numbers? What was it a symbol to these people? Sin and death. So they actually have to stare death in the eyes. This is mind-boggling for me. I don't know about you. So... What I'm trying to say is you want to experience Easter? Take a good look at Good Friday. We are people of Easter. And I'm not saying camp out at Good Friday because we have stuff to celebrate. We have resurrection life. So don't camp out there. But I'm saying take a good look at Friday if you want to have a Sunday. So also, Jesus says, the Son of Man will be lifted up, and as you look at his death, your problem will, with death will be solved. It's like this guy, uh, Neil, said. It's a striking biblical example of the principle that sometimes like cures like. So one of the greatest medical innovations in recent centuries is the development of the vaccine. If a doctor injects your body with a small amount of the disease you want to avoid, your cells will produce the antibodies that will ward off the disease should you later come into contact with it. 
So going back to John 3 and Numbers 21, folks had to look at the problem in faith to experience the solution. And folks, if we have not even come to the part of our problem that you have a problem, you are a sinner, you have sin in your life, then good luck finding the inoculation, good luck finding the healing, good luck finding Jesus and the resurrection. Folks had to look up at the serpent. They had to look at the symbol of death before God acted with healing and with life. We got to look up at the symbol of death and all of its ugliness before we experience God's resurrection power. Yeah, I said ugliness. In fact, it wasn't that long ago that we buried my brother. It was two or three years we just had the anniversary. But I liked when my, my other brother gave the eulogy and he says, we are people of life. We're people of the resurrection. We do not fear what has happened here. We don't like it, doesn't feel good, but we are the people of God and we look at this and I just loved how he expounded on it because I, I don't like death. In fact, every time I do a funeral, it's one of those, ah, makes me think of lots of folks that have gone before me. But there's still something about a funeral for somebody that loves Jesus that is also a celebration that they're free. It's only when we understand that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's only when we understand, stare at that for a second. Where we're born into sin and we're sinners. If you're not a sinner, you don't need Jesus this morning. Scott Hosey says this. I like what he says, so I'll just read it. So in the gospel, Jesus is raised up on a cross in death. The wages of sin is death, and so death is our problem as sinful people. Somehow when we cast our eyes on Jesus' death, we receive the gospel vaccine, as it were. But what that means is that, that the way a person gets born again, as Jesus has been describing this to Nicodemus, is precisely by being crucified with Christ. This, then, is the direct setup for John 3.16. We all love the promise of eternal life, just like David Crowder says, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Uh, we all love the promise of eternal life. We all are drawn to the promise that we will not perish. And we all like the apparent simplicity that all we need to do is get these good things, uh, to get these good things is to believe, quote unquote. But seen in its proper wider context, those famous words of John 3 verse 16 assume a far more startling, almost chilling profile. Because the main thing you need to believe to be born again is that Jesus' death helps you. We need to dispense with the idea that we can help ourselves, that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, that we can somehow earn salvation or in any way get by on our own. Nicodemus had to dump the notion that his highfalutin religious credentials cut any ice with God. Nicodemus had to die to all of it. But the funny thing about being dead is that the dead person is, by definition, completely unable to do another blessed thing. If you're dead the way Jesus was dead on the cross, your only hope is that someone will resurrect you and raise you back and give you new life. Galatians says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Second Corinthians tells us to be ambassadors, therefore, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Folks, have you tasted enough of death? Have you been pricked by the needle of death enough that now you turn toward Christ? You look death in the face. You see the cross of Jesus Christ. You look up to the serpent and you say, wow, I believe Jesus. I want you. I want to walk into the light. But there's another way to use vaccines. Or let me talk about a little bit about antibiotics. We all know that the use or the poor use or the overuse of antibiotics has gotten us in trouble. Sky Jathani says that we used to believe that when uh, young folks walked away from the church, so, you know, 17, 18, 19, oh, that's, that's heartbreaking, but they'll come back. You know, when they get married or after a couple years of life or maybe after their first child, they'll come back. Well, research says that that's grim and slim pickings now. Lots of people, when they leave the church, they leave the church. So he's studying this, wondering what in the world, and this is his premise. Um, Reachers, so they're not coming back. So he thinks that we're inoculating people to Jesus. So he thinks that in a lot of our churches, I come over here to Chris and I give him a needle, just a little bit of Jesus, that all of a sudden when that part of the inoculation or that part of Jesus that he heard falls apart, his faith falls apart. Then I come over here to Andrew and I give him a little bit different side of Jesus. And then when he goes on missions and he's been serving God, which he does a ton. So he goes on missions, 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 missions. And then all of a sudden bad news comes to his family. He says, God, I've been serving you. I, I've been doing everything for you. But yet God seems to not have been faithful to him. His faith falls apart and he walks away from God and the church. So Sky Jathani is saying, somehow we've inoculated young people or people to Jesus Christ because we've just given them a little piece of Jesus. Let me tell you just a bit. I won't go on and on here. But in his book called With, W-I-T-H, he outlines five ways of how we view God. Uh, one of them is life under God. So here I am and I serve God. And I kind of grew up in that environment where I was kind of... Uh, under legalism, I felt like I had to do stuff. In fact, I remember as a little kid, if I did something bad, I knew it was going to be bad. I walked really softly and very safely that day. I'd put on my seatbelt and stuff just in case God wanted to wipe me out, right? So totally messed up, but hey, I'm your preacher anyway. Um, so that's life under God, which becomes a moralism. So I try and do everything just right so that God smiles upon me and I'm safe. That's a moralism, life under God. Another one is life over God. So you just use the Bible and God for principles that help us in life. This happens a ton. I think this turns off our young people big time, where you go to business school or whatever, I'm sure it probably even happens at Trinity, where you teach all sorts of principles from the Bible, all sorts of principles about God, and you're using it as a way to get ahead in life. But you're not going after God. You're going after principles of God. I didn't write. Another one is, um, and that's also a, Christian, a form of Christian deism. Another one is life from God. So consumerism. 
Uh, I'll explain that in a bit. And then another one is life for God, a missionism, that, which I was using Andrew as an, as an illustration. So we get life for God. So we do everything for him, for him, for him, for him. So for instance, I can go to you that I've been living life under God. I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls that do kind of thing. But uh, and all of a sudden I'm doing this and I'm under God. And all of a sudden I look at my whole family. And I think each one of my children should walk with God. Well, the fact is they don't. So I can go to God, God, I've served you all these years. I've been a pastor for how many years and this is what I get? You see how my faith could break down? God, this guy says again, God is often seen as a means to an end. For example, life from God uses him to supply our material needs. Life over God uses him as a source of principles or laws. Life under God tries to manipulate God through obedience to secure blessings and avoid calamity. And life for God uses him and his mission to gain a sense of direction. Now here's the secret. I've given you four. I said there's five. Four. All four of those, there's something legit and good about each one of those. We have to be under God as in he's the Lord, I am not. I love it when I have a sense of calling and I go on mission. I love it when I do receive spiritual blessings and I do receive material blessings, absolutely. But you isolate all of those and then you're left with a very feeble God. So he says, in each of these postures, we end up being ultimately about our attempt to control God and to control our lives. But he says the fifth thing that we need is we need life with God, with God, not just from, not just for, not just under, and not just over. We need life with God. So I want to conclude with a statement from an incredible writer and a man that we're going to miss, John Stott. John Stott said this, for the discipleship principle is clear. The poorer our vision of Christ, the poorer our discipleship will be. Whereas the richer our vision of Christ, the richer our discipleship will be. So if you have just a one-sided or a lame view of Jesus, Lame views of Jesus puts out lame disciples of Jesus. You have a rich, full view of Christ. You will continue to grow into that until the day you pass from this world. So I leave you with a question. Have you been inoculated from death? Have you tasted death enough that I want Jesus? Or have you tasted just enough of Jesus? to actually inoculate yourself from him. Heavenly Father, thank you for the folks that showed up this morning and uh, I pray a blessing upon them. I preach because this is preached to me. Lord, I, I know I've grown up often life under God or I've felt like I get life from you or I wanna get stuff from you. And Lord, forgive us for that. Help us to see that it's the full meal deal. That Lord, even through hard times, through good times, through sickness and through health, 
Lord, you're there with us and we are with you. We thank you for your spiritual and material blessings. We thank you for your direction in life. We thank you that you're king and Lord of our life. Lord, we wanna walk this journey with you. So today, we look up at the cross. We stare at its ugliness and disgust. It's such a nasty story of how you died on the cross for us. And Lord, on that cross, we see our dirtiness and our sin, our shortcomings, our pollution, our desires, our, 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 uh, how we're attracted to bright, shiny objects of this world. And Lord, my prayer is that me and my fellow brothers and sisters in here can just take a glimpse at Good Friday, take a glimpse at the cross and its ugliness and turn toward Resurrection Sunday where you have given us life, you paid the price for us, and now not only that, but we have life in Jesus Christ. We now don't have to worry about death and death stuff. Not only that, but you give us the Holy Spirit to walk in humility and in power to give you honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray.